Hey, everybody, it's John Moe. We're about to get started with this episode of The Hilarious World of Depression. And before we do, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about supporting the show, how you can do that, and why you would want to do that. You know, when you listen to this program, you hear surprisingly honest, funny stories about mental health, stories that might validate your own experiences, your own feelings, stories from real people that make you say, hey, you know, someone else gets this. I'm not alone in this. These are the stories that have helped many of our listeners talk more openly about Clinny D to their friends, family, loved ones. You can help bring even more of these stories to light. Your gift to the show, no matter the size, makes a real significant difference. To make your gift, click the donate button at hilariousworld.org. Thanks. Is depression funny? I have to say, I don't find it hilarious. I know that lots of your guests do, and I appreciate them, but it's never been that funny for me. Okay. Uh, it's only the title of our show, so no big deal. That's fine. <laughs> Guy goes in to see a doc, says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. Imagine you're a writer. You love stories. You love writing them so people can love them as much as you do. Then imagine that you write a huge, blockbuster, critically acclaimed, mega bestseller novel that people love desperately. It turns into a hit movie and you have all the success you ever dreamed of. And then you have to do it again. Oh, and also you have a chronic mental illness. I'm John Green. I'm a novelist and video blogger. And right now I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. I talked to John Green long distance. I was in a studio in St. Paul. He was ensconced in his office in Indianapolis. Do you want, do, we don't have to do a countdown or anything? Usually I have to do a countdown with my brother. Oh, no, we can do one if you like. I mean, whatever's, I just want to make the engineer's life easy. If you're over 25, you might not have heard of John Green. If you're under 25, you definitely have heard of John Green. He's been increasingly popular in the young adult genre for many years. And in 2012, John's novel, The Fault in Our Stars, came out and was huge. It crossed over from popular young adult novel to just enormously popular everywhere novel. It told the story of Hazel and Augustus, two teenagers dealing with cancer who fall in love. The Fault in Our Stars became a movie in 2014. What's your name? Hazel. And what's your full name? Hazel Grace Lancaster. Why are you looking at me like that? Because you're beautiful. Oh my God. John Green has just published a new novel called Turtles All the Way Down. It's about trying to manage a mental disorder and a complicated life. John has been dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD, for a long time, along with depression and anxiety. Describe, if, if you could, um, the anecdote from which the, the book gets its title and, and why you chose to, to call the book that. Yeah, so there's a lot of versions of this story, um, but basically some professor is giving a long lecture about the history of the earth and how, you know, it formed 
billions of years ago and then after being very hot for a long time liquid oceans formed and then uh, single-celled life emerged and then slowly over the course of hundreds of millions of years became more complex and then there was life on land and then slowly that life became more complex and then eventually uh, humans emerged 300,000 years ago and then became the dominant species on this spherical planet uh, that is the you know the third rock from our sun and at the end of the lecture the professor says are there any questions and an old woman in the back uh, of the lecture hall raises her hand and the professor says yes and the woman says uh, uh, you know that's very interesting but the truth is that the world is a flat plane resting on the back of a giant turtle and the professor uh, wanting to have a bit of fun uh, says well what well, if that's the case what is that turtle standing on and the old woman says, well, that's, that turtle is standing on another giant turtle. And the professor, now getting frustrated, says, well, what is that turtle standing on? And the woman says, no, sir, you don't understand. It's turtles all the way down. And uh, it's an incredibly helpful story to me. So much of my obsessive thinking is trying to find the bottom turtle. Uh, it's trying to solve a problem of recursive thinking through recursive thinking. Um, instead of just saying, mm, this, maybe this is just turtles all the way down. And then there's the second, the second thing that I love about the story, uh, is that I, I obviously the world is spherical. I am not a flat earther, <laughs> um, you know, and the world, the world is everything that that professor said that it was, but the world is also the stories we tell about it. That, that is also true. Um, and, and the world is also the way we imagine it and understand it and imagine ourselves and understand ourselves. So yes, like myself uh, is all of the things that, uh, that you could say scientifically and empirically about it, but myself is also the stories that I tell about it. And that gives me a measure of control um, and, and a measure of, uh, of autonomy, I, I, I guess. John Green writes stories of young people trying to figure out themselves, the world, and how those fit together. There are no wizarding academies in his books, no dreamy teenage vampires, no miraculous happy endings, just problems and how to live with them. It was as a teenager that John first started to notice problems with his own mental state. His family and even the school he went to were all very supportive. No stigma from them. At the same time, I felt a lot of like just personal shame about it. And I've, you know, I felt like it was a weakness. I felt like, um, like I just needed to kind of get my head straight. I, I would always say to myself, like, just stop thinking that way. Just stop doing this, you know, like, uh, which nobody ever says about the flu, you know, like nobody's ever like, just snap out of it, man. Stop having that stupid fever. <laughs> Uh, but I did, I did talk to th myself that way for a long time. Yeah, I can't imagine that worked out very well. No, it's not an effective strategy, of course, <laughs> like a lot of things that I've tried over the years. Thinking your way out of problems with your mind is not terribly effective. It's like trying to run until your broken leg feels better. OCD, again, I'm not a psychologist, but I do know that um, people with OCD are more likely to experience... Uh, depression and anxiety. And I've had periods of depression um, in my life, a couple of them f fairly serious. And uh, that started for me in high school. And then a couple times 
sort of, you know, I had a couple of depressive periods in, in my, in my twenties as well. Just awful. I mean, just, um, uh, just the night descends, you know, um, as there's a a great Edna St. Vincent Millay poem that I've quoted in both looking for Alaska and turtles all the way down, um, that, that I just, I just love because it feels, uh, for me, just perfect for for those experiences it starts uh night falls fast today is in the past blown from the dark hill hither to my door three flakes then four arrive then many more and so there's just that that initial feeling of like oh is this is this the snowstorm and then the snowstorm yeah and then you gotta try to dig yourself out of the snow yeah, I'm being less funny than most of your guests. Yeah, most stand-ups don't quote me Edna St. Vincent Millay. John went to Kenyon College in Ohio, and he dedicated himself to writing. The biggest thing that I loved about writing, both in high school and college, was that it was a, a kind of weird mix of time to myself and time reaching out to other people. Like I, I've often thought of writing as kind of like you know that childhood pool game, Marco Polo? I don't know if they play that in Minnesota. Yes. But um, you're in a pool and you say, Marco, 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 and then the people, other people have to say Polo, and then you chase after them. And I've always thought of writing like that. It's like a game of Marco Polo, but it, it's like I'm in my basement for four or five years just saying Marco, Marco, Marco over <laughs> and over again, waiting for that one person to read it and say Polo back. Uh, and I've, I, I really like that. Like I'm, I'm a pretty introverted person and, um, but I, but I want to share, uh, stories. I want to share ideas with people. And, and so especially in college, like that became kind of my way, I guess. Did you always know that, that writing was the thing that, that this was your destiny? No, I mean, I wanted to be a writer, but I wanted to be a writer the way you want to be like an astronaut or a professional athlete or something. It didn't seem like a reasonable career goal. So I always planned to do other stuff. And I, you know, in a lot of ways, I still have a day job. But yeah, I always planned to have a have a career separate from writing. Initially, I thought I wanted to be a minister. Um, I was I majored in religion in college and thought that I might want to be a minister, but um, I was pretty quickly dissuaded from that. How so? I worked as a student chaplain at a children's hospital for about six months, and I realized that on every possible level, I was not uh, well suited to uh, ministry. I, I didn't have the, I didn't have the sort of, um, I didn't have the sort of faith and the sort of uh, theological certainty that I think that you need to be able to bring to the hardest situations that people go through. And I also realized that working from within the church, or at least my church, I'm Episcopalian, was going to be super frustrating for me. And and so, you know, I kind of moved on from that. Writing was something John loved, but he was no phenom. His application to Kenyon's graduate writing program was rejected the clergy hadn't panned out. John was in his early 20s, out of work and short on faith. And he felt depression full force. You know, trying to cope with adulthood, uh, the sort of suddenness, or at least I experienced as it is sudden, the suddenness of adulthood and the, um, 
I, I felt very overwhelmed by it and unqualified for it. And I was also still trying to process, you know, having, um, have, having been with, with people on the worst days of their lives and having, uh, you know, really seen my understanding of the world challenged. Were you, did you try medication during any of this? Oh yeah, I did. I did. And with, with some mixed results, I mean, it's, I think a pretty typical story, like it was, it took a long time to find a medication that worked well for me. And in, in, in many cases, especially in college and then in my early twenties, the side effects of the medications were too, too much for, for me. And so I, I struggled for a long time and then found a, a medication that, that works for, pretty well for me. Um, but probably by the time I was in my like mid to late twenties, but I also had a lot of, you know, therapy and, um, learned a lot of cognitive behavioral stuff. And especially with obsessive thinking and, and anxiety, that stuff for me, at least like really does work. Um, and so that, that helped a lot too. This came up on our last episode with Neil Brennan. Cognitive behavioral therapy is about retraining your thinking process to not go into negative loops, toxic thinking, unhelpful ditches of the mind. Eventually, John ends up as a book reviewer, and he keeps working on his craft. He starts writing young adult fiction. His first book, Looking for Alaska, was partially inspired by rough experiences he had during a summer in Alaska. More books follow. His readership grows. And in 2007, he starts making these videos on YouTube with his brother, Hank, who lives in Montana. They're like video postcards being sent back and forth. Here's the first one John sent. I'm not going to be good at this. Good morning, Hank. It's January 2nd, 2007. I just spent two hours and 13 minutes downloading your two minute and one second video, which can mean only one thing, that I'm at mom and dad's house the last residence in the United States of America with dial-up internet. On the upside, it's awfully pretty. Plus, I get to be- The videos are basically the story of two brothers setting out to get to know the world and get to know each other, sharing insight, fear, hopes, dreams, jokes, thoughts on mental illness. The videos caught on, became viral, as they say, and led to a fan community called Nerdfighters. Among the Nerdfighters, a teenage girl named Esther Earle who was dealing with terminal cancer. John became friends with Esther. Esther died in 2010. She became the inspiration for Hazel in The Fault in Our Stars. I believe we have a choice in this world about how to tell sad stories. On the one hand, you can sugarcoat it. Well, nothing is too messed up that can't be fixed with the Peter Gabriel song. I like that version as much as the next girl does. It's just not the truth. The Fault in Our Stars debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Time magazine named it the top fiction book of the year. John's author appearances became more like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. To borrow John's analogy from before, now it was like he had said Marco and millions of people screamed polo at the top of their lungs. Here's audio of John and Hank crowd surfing at a convention. I don't know what it does to people in general, but it it was not great for me 
Um, and I and I say that in the past tense because I do think that um, that it's over, or at least the the parts of it that were really not great for me are over. And again, I really I don't want to sound ungrateful, but that you know, if, if I'm going to be honest about it, uh, it was it was not good for my my brain. Um, it was not good to have just that kind of outside um, outside attention and to feel like there were people sort of looking over my shoulder all the time and I and I felt really self-conscious I, I started to feel really self-conscious in public spaces you know I remember in middle school thinking that everybody was talking about me or looking at me or thinking about me um, and then slowly realizing that everybody else also felt that way and that you know, this was going to be okay because nobody was actually thinking about me or looking at me. But then I started to feel, you know, a few years ago, like when I was in public spaces, like, oh, these, the, the, I think that person actually is looking at me. Um, <laughs> and, and then I started, started to feel pretty self-conscious in, in public um, and, and not, you know, not able to navigate those spaces very well, which, you know, becomes a problem if you're going to be a father and a husband and a person who shops for groceries and everything else. Um, and so the, that was not great for me. And I think in general, um, I have benefited tremendously from having a really good support system here in Indianapolis and, you know, a tight knit family and really close friends and, just that just being removed from all that stuff because you're on the set of a movie for several months or because you're traveling around um, it isn't great for me. And so I think part of it was coming to terms with that and, and learning that about myself and uh, sort of sort of moving on from that very attractive world of, you know, hanging out with cool people and being in amazing places to the life that I, I think in the end I actually want, which is, you know, sitting in my basement in Indianapolis watching House Hunters International. I wonder how it felt for you, like how it how it affected your mental health, um, the transitions that you've had in your career from, you know, aspiring writer to professional writer to huge best-selling writer, author, like, did, did that make things better? Did that make things worse when you, when you moved higher and higher up that chain? Well, I mean, the thing that I, I would definitely say is that because effective mental health treatment is so difficult to find for a lot of people and so expensive, uh, for a lot of people, um, that the, the success of my books, off, like gave me a, 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 an like opportunities to get good healthcare and good treatment options, which is an ex incredible privilege, especially uh, in the United States. And and really, I I think having access to good care is it, it's it's horrifying that it has to be a privilege, uh, but but it is a privilege in in the U.S. right now, and um, and so that's 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 the main thing. Through it all, John and Hank kept making videos, gaining subscribers who bought books, who watched more videos, who went to movie versions of John's works. His 2007 book, Paper Towns, became a movie in 2015. The John Green brand grew and grew. Over 1,500 Vlogbrothers videos are now available. They've been viewed over 700 million times. 
Plus, there's a series of educational videos called Crash Course with over 6 million subscribers. Here's part of a debate John and Hank had on Vlogbrothers in 2015. Anyway, crime is not actually caused by evil, it's caused by systemic disenfranchisement and poverty and lack of access to job opportunities and education. And yet, Batman continues on not funding police departments or schools or building low-income housing, but tearing up the infrastructure of the city he claims to love while fighting villains who are only powerful because that city is already so blighted and dysfunctional. I'm sorry I'm losing my temper, but does Batman understand how difficult it is for an underfunded city like Gotham to replace roads and bridges? Good morning, John, and thanks for making our most disliked Vlogbrothers video ever. Apparently all you have to do is insult a fictional vigilante. To be fair, though, to everyone in the comments, you pretty much got Batman entirely wrong. Bruce Wayne does contribute to the infrastructure of that fictional blighted city as much as he can, given its deep-rooted culture of corruption that makes it so that there is literally no one else in the city who can help. It's also important to remember that, like, I make that video in my TV room, and then I edit it by myself, and then I upload <laughs> it by myself, and then I sit by myself, you know? So it's a way of connecting with people without um, having the sort of energy drain that I feel from, I don't know, like going to a party or something. John Green's books dominate the young adult bestseller lists. His movies do well. He loves where he lives in Indianapolis, and he literally has people all over the world telling him that they love him and that his work is important. If ever there was someone who should be happy because they have it all, it would be John Green. But that's not how it works. Everyone, say it with me. That's not how it works. There is this weird perpetual hope, um, not just, I think, among people with, with mental illnesses, but maybe, I don't know if it's American or if it's human or what, but there does seem to be this weird perpetual hope that if I just get this one thing that my life is missing, uh, the hole inside of me will be filled. I was once speaking to a very wealthy person, um, and they literally said to me, if I could just own a plane instead of, you know, having like a fractional lease situation. <laughs> and I was like, stop the sentence, stop the sentence, stop. Stop. Hold on. You cannot seriously believe that. Like, you can't seriously think like, oh, I'm still just the one thing away. I'm one plane away from from ultimate <laughs> fulfillment. Yeah. I mean, the hope that uh, uh, that that professional success or or uh, or any of that would um, kind of fill the the gaps inside of me perished a long t a long time ago in my case. <laughs> when did they perish? I think when my first book came out. Um, you know, like my first book wasn't that commercially successful when it came out, but it seemed commercially successful to me. Um, I, like I, I was very happy with with it and and how it did, and that people were reading it and everything. And I almost immediately realized that like all the things that I'd imagined about. Uh, being an author, or not all of them, but a lot of the things I'd imagined about being an author, and a lot of the. Uh, hopes that that I'd had that it was going to solve a bunch of my problems that, you know, in the end, I was I, I was still going to be me, right? Like uh, the tragedy of, of travel, um, in, in my case, at least, is that I, I always have to take myself with me. <laughs> it's got, you have to pack your baggage, so to speak. Yeah. And then you end up, then you're in Brazil or in Jamaica or whatever, and you're like, oh, but I'm still with me.
So you got John Green, literary megastar, but there are two complicating factors. The expectation of a follow-up to The Fault in Our Stars and the persistent presence of chronic mental illness, which is where we find John Green in just a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of demystifying depression a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It is a serious disease. The good news? People can and do recover. They get help. They get better. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation at times, but makeitok.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org. You can take the pledge right there to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with John Green, I spoke with him in mid-September with the publication date of Turtles All the Way Down just around the corner, after he'd finished the book, but before he found out what the world thought of it. How are you feeling? How are you holding up? Uh, pretty well. This is not, for me, the most fun part of publishing a book. Uh, I... I I don't like to complain about any part of uh, writing or publishing. It's a job that I'm extraordinarily lucky to have. But the month or so before a book comes out is always a bit of a uh, time of dread and worry. But um, but all things being equal, I'm I'm holding up fairly well. Why is the month before the time of dread and worry? I think because nobody's really read the book yet. And so I don't know what the response to it will be. And... Um, and then there's also the prospect of, you know, going out on tour and, and, and doing interviews and having kind of a public life for a while. I, I have a very public life kind of week to week making videos with my brother, but it's a public life that I have a lot of control over. How long has it been since The Fault in Our Stars came out? Uh, it's been almost six years. And have you been working on this new book that entire time? No. I, well, I guess it depends on how you define working. Um, I was working on a story that I ended up junking, and then I was working on a different story that I ended up junking. But whenever I abandon something, I always try to salvage it for parts, and little bits of that those stories ended up in the, the new book, Turtles All the Way Down. But there was also a somewhat extended period of unwellness in there during which it was impossible for me to write or even read at a lot of times because I just didn't have a lot of control over my own thoughts. And so I wasn't able to concentrate enough to, to write or read. And in a lot of ways, the book that I ended up writing came out of that period. Um, because I, I, you know, as I kind of emerged slowly from it, I wanted to try to find some form or expression for for what I was experiencing, because part of what I found so terrifying about it, I think, was that I couldn't um, 
I couldn't give it form, you know, I couldn't say exactly what I was what I was going through. One of the challenges, I think, of psychic pain is that y- y- it's really hard to find form for it. You know, it's really hard to tell people what it what it feels like, um, partly because it's so abstract and partly because it's so interior. And were you able to identify it when it was happening? Were you able to say this is OCD? Uh, yeah, I mean, I knew that I was, I mean, uh, you know, it's weird because I, I did know that I was really sick and I even made jokes about it. You know, I, my brother and I kind of continued as much as possible with our normal work. So I made a video pretty much every week. I was able to at least get that done and I was able to make podcasts with my brother sometimes. And I would talk about it in the midst of it. Here's John in a video from last year. I have a theory about this thing. I don't think we humans like to imagine our lives as random. We need human lives to be narratives that make sense. So if we can't find causation, we just create it. Like people get depression because they're weak, or they get diabetes because they don't eat well, or they have heart failure because they don't exercise. All that stuff is either totally inaccurate or overly simplistic, but we want every effect to have a cause, and when we can't find that cause, we invent one. Anyway, Hank, as you know, I have been very sick the last several weeks as I've tried to figure out a new medication regimen. Over the years of living with my illness, I've learned a lot about how to make it tolerable. I've learned to celebrate small successes. I've learned to encourage myself without being cruel. And most importantly, I've learned that there is hope and that when I feel like there isn't hope, my brain is lying to me. But still, it is awful. And after years of relatively good health, I have been reminded in the last several weeks just how painful and crushing this stuff can be. It was really, it's, uh, yeah, I knew I was sick, but I, I didn't have a solution for it. And for me, at least, like knowing knowing that something was wrong with my brain did not do much to alleviate the pain of it. Part of the reason it took a while to get Turtles all the way down, written and out into the world, is that John, a professional novelist, got sucked into some dangerous fiction, which led to trouble. I do know what triggered it, probably. Uh, Probably what triggered it is that I bought into this old romantic lie that... Um, that, that people can only write well when they are not treating their mental health problem. And so I stopped taking the medication that I'd been taking for many years. And, um, and that is what caused it. And it was brutal and terrifying. And part of what made it so horrible was knowing that I'd kind of done it you know, to myself. I think it's a pretty common thing where people stop taking their medication for a variety of reasons. Um, but for me, I was so frustrated with my inability to, to write, to finish anything, to do the work that I wanted to do that I thought, oh, if I, you know, maybe if I stop taking this, then I'll suddenly be better at writing. That of course, did not turn out to be the case. Like, instead, what happened is that it became impossible for me to write anything. Where did you get the idea that you'd be better off uh, writing without the medication? I don't know. From, like, all the millions of stories of people who go off their medications and then solve crimes or whatever, (laughs) you know, like... (laughs) Those would be fiction stories, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, looking back is a terrible idea. But it's also, I think, there was an element of my brain lying to me and wanting some kind of... uh, wanting some kind of freedom from it, you know. It's a little frustrating to me to 
uh, have to take a medication in order to feel like myself. There's something weird about the notion of only becoming yourself when you um, when you take a medication. Looking back, I found all kinds of justifications for it, and they were all pretty stupid. I believed for a long time in this romantic lie that uh, that creativity, in order to reach its full potential, needs to be next to madness. I, I wish that I'd known that, for me at least, uh, creativity works best when I treat my chronic health problem consistently and with care. Part of the challenge with mental illness for anyone who has it, for anyone who even wants to discuss it, is that it is hard to describe. It's this thing in your mind and you feel wrong-ish. John Green comes at describing OCD in a different way. I find it pretty easy to come up with analogies. Um, The analogy that I use the most is that it's like a thought spiral. It's like a tightening spiral where you lose control of, of your thoughts and you're not able to choose what you think about. And whatever the focus of your obsession is, it might be uh, contamination, it might be disease, it, it can be all kinds of things. Y- you find it impossible not to think about that thing all the time. And, you know, we all have experiences of not controlling our thoughts, but to be stuck in one of these these thought spirals where, y- you know, th- that thought becomes kind of a blizzard that um, makes everything else makes it so that you can't see anything else is really terrifying and exhausting. And for me, like the compulsive behaviors that I've developed to um, around these obsessive thought spirals are ways of trying to manage or cope with or calm down the um, this sort of torrent of thoughts. But like even now, like it, when I'm talking to you, I realize that I'm using all of these analogies, right? I'm talking about it as a torrent or as a blizzard or as a thought spiral or whatever. It's so it, it's relatively easy to say what it's like but it's very difficult for me to say what it is. You know, it's difficult for me to approach it in any way other than through metaphor. Is OCD your prime resident in your mental hotel? Like, do you, do you get the depression? Do you get the anxiety? Do you get all these other things? Or is it mostly the OCD now? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, I mean, as best you can separate those things, I suppose. Right. I, it's also spectral to me, you know? Like, I don't know that it... I don't know that it lives effectively for me in one box or another. Um, Anxiety has been a much bigger problem in my life for the last 10 years than, um, than made the kind of major depression that I, that I have had a couple of experiences with. Um, And, you know, that, that anxiety can definitely be disabling. Um, uh, But, but yeah, I would say that, it's it's hard for me to separate. I, I know that OCD is no longer listed as an anxiety disorder, but when I am inside of one of those obsessive thought spirals, I am extremely anxious and very scared and very um, and very overwhelmed and and much more likely to experience panic attacks and and all of that stuff. So uh, for for me. It, Although I understand that it's not an anxiety disorder, it's certainly something that causes a lot of anxiety. When you're in one of those states, are you thinking, I am in a spiral right now, I'm having this, it's, or does it feel like this is the the true picture of the world? Yeah, it it just, both, weirdly, uh, like, 
I don't know, a, a few days ago, you know, my wife was saying to me, like, this is, this is not the, f- the first, this is not our first rodeo here right now. Like what, what's happening to you? Like, this is exactly like all the other times that it has happened to you. And I was like, no, this is different. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, this one is real. This, this time, you know, this time, this time it's legit. But of course it was, again, it was, you know, the brain lying to you. Um, so I, 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 there is a there is a rational part of me that even in the in the midst of the storm, you know, there's a part of me that's saying like this is not the first time that you've been sucked into this particular whirlpool. I'm using every possible metaphor. I'm, I apologize for the over metaphorification of this. <laughs> I love metaphors, but um, but there's another part of me that that it doesn't do any. It just doesn't do me. It doesn't help. Like I, it you know. I, is there in the end a difference between something being real and feeling real? Uh, not for me when I'm inside of it. As John mentioned earlier, he tries to be honest and open about himself in his videos, although from the comfort and security of his Indianapolis home. In a video from last year, he pulled back the curtain on what the reality of OCD looks like. So the other day I was talking to a YouTube friend of mine who also has OCD, and they were like, how do you seem so put together? Which is weird, because at the exact same moment, I was thinking the exact same thought about them. Anyway, the answer, of course, for both of us is editing. Like, you hear me say, good morning, Hank, it's Tuesday. I'm going to try to do this without a script. But, like, what you don't hear is this. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Hank, it's Tuesday. So the other... Good, good morning, Hank, it's Tuesday. So the other day... Good, good morning, Hank, it's Tuesday. So the other day I was talking to a YouTube friend of... Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Hank. It's Tuesday. So the other day I was talking to a YouTube friend of... Good morning. Good morning. That goes on for about two minutes and 40 seconds. So, like, this is real. I'm in my real basement right now, and I'm going to really edit this video and upload it. But it's also inevitably a construction. Like, I'm picking this frame. There's a familiar portrayal of obsessive-compulsive disorder, where the person needs to turn every light switch on and off seven times before leaving a room, or has to keep coming home to make sure that the oven is turned off. Ritualistic behavior kind of thing. And that's real. But for John, it's all on the inside. It's all internal. Thoughts he keeps having that feed more thoughts that he keeps having. There's a lot of overlap between John's life and that of his new book's protagonist. She's a 16-year-old girl named Aza who lives in Indianapolis uh, and who is really struggling with this lack of control over her thoughts. And um, she's trying to be, you know, a student and a friend and a daughter. And she's also uh, sort of reluctantly trying to be a detective at the behest of her best friend, but it's very difficult for her to be good at any in any of those roles because so much of her kind of thoughtscape is occupied by, in her case, this really severe fear of um, contamination with uh, that, that something that she eats or something that she does or, or through her finger, somehow she's going to get C. diff, this uh, terrible infection uh, that, that, that can be very serious. And so she, she's just constantly thinking about the microbial balance of power within her and all the things that might tip it or upset it and cause some kind of uh, disaster within her. 
Did you create her by taking your own experiences and swapping the gender and changing the age and just writing it all down? I mean, is she you or is it different? She's not me. And and her kind of, you know, it was important to me to create lots of kind of distance between her and me. But I also think that I couldn't have written about her if I hadn't had the experiences that I've had. I mean, or or maybe someone else could have, but I, I couldn't have. Um, I, I needed to be... Um, I needed to know what it was like to be stuck in a thought spiral in order to try to, in order to write her thought spirals. But she is very much fictional, and I wanted the book to be very obviously uh, fictional. Is Turtles All the Way Down your most personal book? It it is. I mean, it's it, it's it's weird because it's like my least autobiographical book, um, but it's my most personal book. It's the one that I've I've definitely never w- worried like this before. I, I think in the past when. Um, even when I've been writing about coded versions of myself or in some cases, very thinly veiled versions of myself, I felt like I was writing about my past. I felt like I was writing about something that happened to me um, or some, you know, someone I knew or, or a feeling I'd had. And, um, and this is, I, I think the first time that I've, I felt like I'm writing about something that, uh, uh, that isn't in the past for me that, that, um, you know, that, that has a present tense uh, effect on my life. And, and it's also personal in the sense that, you know, it, it's, I, I had to look a lot at myself to try to understand Aza. How do you do that when you don't have the, the perspective of the past, when you, when you can't stand back and, and look at it when you're right in the middle of it? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's a big part of what made it hard. Um, I guess I, 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 really until the end of the book, I didn't try to write with perspective. You know, I, I felt like no spoilers, but I had to end the book the way that I did to try to, uh, create that sense of, uh, perspective and, and a sense of, uh, self awareness. Um, but when I was writing the rest of the story, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to have perspective. I didn't want to, um, you know, I, I didn't want to have the comfort of feeling like, um, uh, like, like this was something from, from the past. John Green sees his mental illness as something from the present, something happening now. He writes that way as well. His characters are often trying to work through something very difficult. They're searching, they're struggling. And readers have come to identify with those characters really strongly. The books become more than just stories. The readers become more than casual fans. I asked John how it felt to have the burden of all that emotional commitment to carry around. Oh, it doesn't feel like that to me. It really doesn't. It feels like uh, like an incredible gift. It feels like they've been just so like so generous to to my work. I, I really think that uh, good readers make books better. Like I think that the book, at least in the case of my books, like the books themselves aren't that good, but, you know, these people who invest real care and passion into it make them better. And so I just feel really grateful. And it doesn't, it does not feel like a burden to me when people cry. I I want them to be able to express themselves. So I don't want them to, you know, get so lost in that emotion that they can't say what they need to say, but it doesn't feel like I have to hold it or, or, um, 
like like it's a burden to me. Um, the only thing I worry about, I I always worry. I spend a lot of time worrying in those situations that I'm not going to respond well or that I, I, there's always like the looming fear of having a panic attack in in some kind of public place and that being super embarrassing and difficult to deal with and hard for the people who are around me when it happens. So sometimes that goes through my head, but it never, um, it, it, it doesn't feel, um, it, it really, it really feels like a gift. It feels like, um, I, They've taken something that I really uh, worked on, and, and they've they've let it into their their lives, and that's so. It just feels like an incredible kindness. I mean, it's not merely a kindness. They're finding something really strong in there. I mean, at the risk of the question being torpedoed by by your modesty, uh, what is it that people are finding in your books that becomes such a so emotionally resonant for them? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I I try, I do try, I do try really hard to um, to put my guts in it. You know, like um, with the Fault in Our Stars and Turtles All the Way Down, especially. I, um, you know, I mean, I mean, I think the reason that I t- took six years to write this book is that uh, I I was trying really, really hard to find the right. Uh, ways of of talking about, or the right ways for me, I guess, of talking about, uh, th- you know, these experiences and what it's like to to lose your sense of self and to lose your feeling of 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 realness, to lose your your sense that you're the the captain of your consciousness, um, and and then I just honestly, I feel like you kind of have to get lucky. I feel like there's there's so many great books that don't find a, a, a broad audience. And I, I think I've just been, uh, I've just been super lucky. Did you write when you were in uh, the, the bad state that you're talking about? Can you write when you're in a, in a really bad way? I can't No, And I, I think one of the things that I find so scary about it, like I can't, I mean, I can't read a menu sometimes, um, so I, I certainly can't write. And that's one of the things that I find scary about it. Like if, if my thoughts, uh, can become so far outside of my control that I, I can't choose whether, uh, to write, I can't choose whether I'm able to, you know, read a book, um, or pay attention to a TV show or, or help my kids with their homework. Um, that, that's terrifying. You know, I mean, that, that makes you feel like, Instead of, I think at one point, Aza uh, says that it, it doesn't feel so much like a demon possessing her as it feels like she's the demon. And that's that's a feeling that I'm familiar with. And now, after all that went into his book, John Green puts it out into the world, makes it everybody's book and not just his. Do you still sometimes tie yourself into, like your your self-image, your self-esteem tied into book sales or awards or gross at the box office of the adaptations? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I wish I didn't. And I wish that I could divorce my work from myself the way that I see some of my friends do really effectively. And I really admire it. But, um, you know, it would it wouldn't be honest to say I, I don't care if people like my books. I do. I do care. And I do. I do want them to like them. I don't I don't care that much about um, uh, like 
book sales or box office or whatever, but I do, I do care if people like the books and I, I, I've never quite been able to separate myself from the, the stuff that I make. Can you keep things in perspective in terms of, cause this is something I've heard authors talk about. This is something I've dealt with when I've written books, like there might be a hundred good reviews and then a bad review. And then you just become obsessed with the bad review and, and wanting to yeah. talk to that person. Yeah, and you can quote it and you see all those stories about people like tracking down the authors of their bad reviews and like heckling them or whatever. Um, you know, I intellectually, I understand that no book is for everyone um, and, and that, you know, if it if it if it were, it wouldn't be that good. Uh, I I want to make stuff that some people will will care about and and that will help them and that they'll find useful in their lives and um and i understand that part of that is that means that other people won't like it or won't find it useful or, or won't see the the value in it i don't i i have to say i don't read reviews the way that i i used to i used to read a lot of them and uh as i've gotten older it's it's easier. It's easier for me to let go of that a little bit. Only a little bit, but a little bit. Are you going to read them when the new book comes out? Uh, probably for like the first couple days. <laughs> Actually, it's funny you should say that because I was just reading the Goodreads reviews um, of the book um because uh, several hundred people have reviewed it although none of none of those people ha has actually read it yet uh -huh. uh, so it's really interesting <laughs> to read the reviews of people who haven't read your book yet um a lot of strong opinions yeah um and I, i'm i'm happy i gotta say overall i'm happy i think it's like 40 40 percent of the people who haven't read my book give it five stars oh congratulations I pre thank you. And th there's like 20% of people who give it one star. And that, that does seem a little ungenerous. Like, I feel like you should give it three stars until you've read it. And then you can go down to one if you need to. Or, or there's the option of just waiting and reading the goddamn thing first. Sure. Well, of course, but John, I mean, John, nobody on the internet can wait until they've read a book to rate it. That's asking too much. Mm. I'm pretty sure the internet has some pretty strict standards for what can what can appear there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm talking a big game about how I don't read reviews as much anymore, but I literally have read reviews just today of my book that hasn't come out yet. So obviously, <laughs> still some still some progress to be made. <laughs> I asked John Green how he planned to handle fame and attention better this time out. I think the honest answer to your question is that um, I'm going to like try really hard to take care of myself and I'm going to, you know, do the things that I know work, which are, you know, medication, uh, the behavioral strategies that, that come from therapy and exercise. And I'm just going to, you know, do that stuff. And, um, but I also think that it, 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 may, it may be difficult. I don't, I don't know yet. There's a temptation to tie up the story with the happy ending. Like there's, yeah. you know, and, and with anything really, but with mental illness, especially that, but now they're fine. They've kicked drugs and they're high on life. You know, the People magazine kind of thing. Right. Um, so then I guess it's a question of how, like not only how to manage it, but how to accept its ongoing presence. Right. 
Right. I think that's a that's a huge thing for me is just learning that to accept it that this is going to be part of my life, uh, but that it's not it, it's not going to be my whole life. You know, I have I have this issue with my brain, but I also have other things that I, you know, that I am and that I do. And, and so I'm not, uh, I'm not going to, I'm working really hard to not be embarrassed about this problem that I have, but at the same time to acknowledge that it's one identifier among many, um, you know, that I'm also a husband and I'm a dad and I'm a writer and, um, I'm a YouTuber and, and, and I have this other stuff going on in my life. Um, but I don't, but I don't want to situate it, uh, in the past tense or as something that's over. Um, I do, I I mean, the good, you know, or the good, the hopeful thing is that I, I am of an age now where I know that it's treatable, um, you know, the vast majority of mental illness is is treatable. Unfortunately, not all of it is, but I know that um, I have had success with treatment after really hard times in the past. And there is some comfort in having, having gotten through those times that, um, uh, that at least I, I feel like, well, no, I don't, I'm not ready to say that. I was going to say uh, that, you know, in those moments of abject hopelessness or where the pain is completely overwhelming, I know that that won't always be the case, but that's not true. <laughs> like, actually, I don't know that it won't always be the case because the, the brain is an effective liar. And I always feel like that now is going to be my forever. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our technical director this time out is Cameron Wiley. Thanks also to Nate Toby. Our theme song is called Pagliacci, and it was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller of the band The Old 97s. More about Rhett is available at his website, rhettmiller.com, and be sure to check out Rhett or The Old 97s when they come to your town but only if you enjoy music and having fun. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's confidential. 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information that you can check out for yourself or for someone else. We know that starting a conversation about mental illness can be awkward. Make It Okay has tips on what to say, what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at MakeItOkay.org. We're on Twitter at THW of D. That's T-H-W-O-F-D. And we're on Facebook. Just look for us. You'll find us. And you can even write us an email, an electric mail at THWOD, T-H-W-O-D, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. Make sure to stop by Apple Podcasts and rate us. Maybe write a review. It helps us out a lot. On our next episode, singer-songwriter Amy Mann. 
She's written some very sad songs and performed a surprising amount of comedy. And she doesn't believe that suffering leads to better art. Ew, I hate that. I can't write when I'm depressed. Because for me, you know, being depressed, which, as I said, like is usually preceded or bundled with anxiety, that's all about self-protection. Like, you put up walls, and those walls, those walls go for everything. You know, it's it's not like there's a secret door that you can that's creative creativity sneaks out of. It's nothing sneaks out. You're you're protected in your wall den and you're you know, you're you're in your bunker. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. 